0: But I was reading a a fascinating study from France in an emergency room. And before they discharged the patient from the emergency room, the physician discussed the case with one of his peers. And it didn't take very long, just a minute or two. And what they found, they, they, they followed the outcomes of these patients. It reduced the rate of adverse events by roughly 40%.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Medical Protection Podcast, our headliner series where we keep you up to date with the latest in research and news. My name's Dr. Stephen Priestley, your host for this series on diagnostic error and safety. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with my guest, Professor Mark Graber, in our podcast titled "Diagnosis: A Team Sport." Mark Graber is joining us from California, United States. Mark's a world leader in the field of patient safety and in particular has contributed enormously to our understandings of diagnostic error and just as importantly to the science and strategies that we need to take to improve our diagnostic abilities for the sake of our patients and ultimately ourselves and our families. Mark founded the Diagnostic Error in Medicine conference series in 2008 the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine in 2011, and the journal Diagnosis in January of 2014. In recognition of his contributions in bringing diagnostic quality and safety to greater, to greater attention, Professor Graber received the John Eisenberg Patient Safety Award from the National Quality Forum and the Joint Commission in the US in 2014. The number one recommendation of the landmark National Academy of Sciences Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare report in 2015 was to improve teamwork in the diagnostic process. And this was a major departure from the classical approach where the physician was in some ways solely responsible for diagnosis. And in this new patient-centric vision, an expanded diagnosis team encompassed a number of people, certainly the physician, but also the patient and family, associated nursing staff, and of course also now includes a large number of other healthcare professionals, such as allied health practitioners, pathologists, radiologists, pharmacists, and even medical librarians. Professor Graber was one of the first to take on this challenge of developing teams for diagnosis, which was laid down from that Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare report. And in 2017, published a key paper entitled The New Diagnostic Team in the Diagnosis Journal. In that paper, he sought to describe the elements and personnel that might comprise this new diagnostic team and offered us some early guidance about steps that we could take to harness the unique knowledge, skills and expertise of a varied group that as physicians, we really hadn't tapped into previously. I've had the good fortune to meet Mark on two previous occasions, the first being at a small gathering of quality and safety buffs at the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine in Melbourne in 2013, and on a second occasion at an Australian New Zealand Diagnostic Error in Medicine conference held in Melbourne in 2017, where he was a keynote speaker and ran a workshop on strategies to lessen errors in diagnosis. Now Mark won't know this and at the risk of embarrassing him, but it was Mark's initial talk to a small number of us at the emergency college 10 years ago that really ignited in me an interest and passion to pursue improvements in diagnosis, both in my own personal practice and in my sphere of influence in emergency medicine and patient safety. Most of what he told us that day, to us was completely new information and quite shocking. I'd always thought I was a pretty good diagnostician and I remember thinking, Why have I never known this stuff before? And what do I need to do to improve? So Mark, there's a confession. You inspired me to pursue diagnostic safety, and I've really enjoyed that journey. And I continue to enjoy it. It's so broad and so very rewarding. But what an absolute pleasure and privilege to welcome you here today.
0: Well, thank you, Stephen. It's really my pleasure to be here. Thank you for all those kind words. And thank you for having a series on diagnosis and how it can be improved. I don't know about you, but I never had a course on diagnosis in in medical school. You kind of just learned it by watching your teachers and we all ended up doing, you know, okay. But what is okay? And the research has taught us that okay means we get it right about 90% of the time. And the question is, how do we do better with that other 10%? Because that's where all the harm arises and you're absolutely right the the national academy suggested that teamwork and diagnosis might be the key might be the most impactful thing we could do to improve diagnosis and its out, it's outcomes so it's great to be talking about that today
1: yeah that's um it certainly it was the well what do you think made it the number one recommendation i mean what is it a you know in your experience about teamwork that is actually really going to enhance our ability to be more accurate and safer when we're dealing with patients and trying to come up with an explanation for their health-related condition.
0: Yeah, Stephen, there were really two lines of thought that led to that recommendation to focus on teamwork. The first realization was that so many diagnostic errors arise from breakdowns in clinical reasoning and the cognitive aspects of diagnosis. And that's just how we are. It's, it's a personal thing, and and we all have our tendencies, and we all have a certain set of experiences that we draw upon. And what we've learned is that all those cognitive steps are fallible. They None of us are perfect in our clinical reasoning. We are not ideal thinkers by any any means. And that's where so many diagnostic errors arise. And the experts in this, uh, the psychologists who understand cognition, tell us it's really very hard to change how you think. And really a better approach is to get other people involved to help you because fresh eyes catch mistakes and it brings a second perspective into the process. And, you know, if you're married, are you married, Stephen? You'll you'll appreciate this. Uh,
1: I, I am married. It's quite a team, I've got to tell you.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everybody who's married can relate to this. It is so much easier to see the flaws of someone else than it is to see your own. And that's one of the the foundations of why teamwork is so important. Um, That's just one factor. And the second one was that this comes straight from from aviation safety. Um, I don't know if you remember the the Tenerife disaster in 1977. Uh, 583 people lost their lives. It's the largest loss of life, and any aviation disaster in history. And it was the result of a collision between two planes that were trying to take off at the same time on runways that crossed each other. And at, at its root, it boiled down to the pilot of one of the planes not listening to his co-pilot, who was saying, we can't take off, there's another plane, you have to abort. And the pilot disregarded that and continued on. And that was the the res- resulted in the collision. So that's why there's two pilots in every cockpit, because in aviation they, they've learned the value of teamwork and it's, it's enforced all across the board. And it plays out in medicine too. You know, if a second pathologist looks at the same set of slides as the first one, they will change the diagnosis two, three, four, five 5% of the time. And the same is true in radiology. A second reading will change the diagnosis, maybe three, four, five percent. And even in internal medicine, if you send the same patient that you've thoroughly analyzed and you you think you've got it right for a second opinion, that diagnosis will change ten to fifteen percent of the time. So we see in all of these settings that teamwork has value and can improve diagnostic outcomes.
1: Yeah, actually, that um, Tenerife disaster, I'm very familiar with. With that, I remember that was really the start of of looking at hierarchies and human factors, and the the advent of crew, crew resource management, and yeah, the importance of of flattening a hierarchy uh, when it comes to safety around teams, and and I guess that's the same sort of approach in diagnosis. Let's let's flatten the hierarchy and involve lots of different folk with with unique expertise and, and importantly different perspective, and bring that together. It, Mark, you've mentioned um, pathologists and radiologists, but in that expanded team, there's a, there's a lot more members um, that you would uh, that we believe have a critical role to play in a diagnosis team. Are you happy to just to describe a little more in a bit more detail
0: what a team would look like? Yeah, Stephen, the the teams will vary depending on the situation and the resources you have, and basically it's everybody. Who touches the patient can play a a role in this. Um, I was talking to a group of pharmacists, you know, and these days if you're sick with something, it's kind of hard to get an appointment to go see your primary care person. So a lot of people wander into the pharmacy and start talking about their diarrhea or their abdominal pain. And the pharmacist may be the first medical professional that a patient encounters. And, you know, they've not been to medical school and they're they're not terrific at diagnosis. But on the other hand, they are expert at recognizing medication side effects and medication interactions, and they can recognize many common conditions as well as I can. So, I mean, it it extends out to to those types of people, too. Everybody who sees the patient um, can and should be encouraged to, to be a part of that team. And, and you know you, you you mentioned it teamwork is not exactly a new concept by a long shot, and it's been well adopted in other areas of medicine, in the operating room, uh, in emergency rooms. but applying it to diagnosis really is very novel. and I don't think a lot of people have thought very extensively about what this means and how they could adopt it in their own practice. And it's very doable, so I'm delighted to be having this conversation about it.
1: As well as healthcare professionals, you've, you've certainly always made the point and I think many of us are increasingly aware of the importance of uh, patients and families as being part of the diagnostic team. In fact, you know some years ago that, that was thought to be the first step in establishing a diagnosis team is in inviting the patient and family to be uh, participative members of that. Yeah, we know there are some barriers to patient engagement, um, even when invited. I mean, there is, I guess, the issue of communication skills, uh, health literacy. Sometimes patients want to be engaged, but actually can't get access to their medical records or new results that might come come in as a result of tests that are being done to try and make a diagnosis. Uh, How are we going with that? An important sort of foundational activity to have patients and families as engaged diagnostic team members.
0: Yes, thank you for bringing that up, Stephen. The The patient is the very center of the diagnostic team. And to the extent that you can get them engaged in being your partner, in co-producing the diagnosis, you will have better outcomes. And it's not for every patient. But there's evidence that As as time goes by, more and more patients are comfortable playing that role and working with you as a partner. Uh, And there's excellent evidence that engaged patients have better outcomes in many different pursuits in medicine. And we're starting to see that in our diagnosis world too. Uh, There've been some interesting papers recently about patients who can read their own medical records, which is a big thing in the United States now. It's catching on. And the patients are very interested to do that. And very commonly, they pick up mistakes in the medical record that could be a problem down the road, like a diagnosis that they've been labeled with that was never really confirmed, or an allergy that doesn't really exist, or an allergy that they do have that isn't noted. So I think having patients be able to review their own medical records is a, is a good thing for diagnostic quality and safety, and I would like to see more patients take advantage of that. Um, And there's other ways that patients can be engaged. For sure, I think the most important thing, as you've alluded to, is making them feel comfortable to come back to you if their symptoms change or if they evolve or if the treatment I gave them, you know, isn't working out quite well. Um, that, that follow-up is so important, and unless you give patients permission and encouragement and you have time in your schedule to talk to them or to see them, um, you need all those things, and it's really, really important to improve diagnostic quality. One other thing I'd like to mention is there are a growing number of hospitals that have patients on their advisory committees, their patient safety their quality committees. And that, that's another way, a very important way where patients can have very impactful input on what happens and on how well patients are treated and diagnosed.
1: Yeah, I think that's um, that's an important development. It's interesting you'd mentioned what we call in emergencies safety netting of uh, patients and, and you're quite right. It is about giving them a permission to reattend. Um, if things aren't going along the trajectory that we had anticipated, um, but I do know of some patients who, you know, have come in and they've had abdominal pain and we haven't been able to make a diagnosis. But someone said, "Gee, it's not appendicitis," um, and so they've gone home. The pain's continued on, um, got worse. They've got a fever. And they'll say, oh, well, they said it was not appendicitis. So our language um, is so important. And I had the good fortune of speaking with Carmel Croc earlier on in this series about diagnostic uncertainty and how to be able to communicate that effectively with patients. And as you say, ensure that they know that they can can come back um, for another visit. Um, Just uh, when I think of diagnostic teams, Mark, Uh, I guess my mind immediately goes to my work in the emergency department where where I do have access to large numbers of of expert clinicians who aren't doctors, Uh, our nurses, our pharmacists, allied health, mental health clinicians. Uh, And let me tell you that knowing something about the physician only diagnostic error rate I make absolute sure that I use all of them um, because uh, I know that that uh, is going to improve my accuracy. Uh, But many of our listeners on this podcast uh, actually might be working in primary care. They might be in very small practices, maybe even a solo practice. Who are the members of a diagnostic team in a small primary care practice?
0: Yes, great, great question, Stephen. Um, And the two people... Most easily accessible will be other clinicians, your peers and the nurses who are working with you. Um, Just a couple of comments on on peers. Most of us are not in the habit of discussing cases with uh, the people that we work with, but I was reading a a fascinating study from France in an emergency room in France. And before they discharge the patient from the emergency room, the physician discussed the case with one of his peers. And it didn't take very long, just a minute or two. And what they found, they they followed the outcomes of these patients. It reduced the rate of adverse events by roughly 40%. Just these informal conversations with a peer. So that's something I think a lot of people could do in their practice setting if there's another physician around uh, who's willing to give you a few minutes could be very valuable, um, and the nurses are incredibly important. Um, nobody knows or spends as much time with the patient as the nurses do. They, they know them in many cases better than we do. Uh, they're in an excellent position to know whether communication was effective back and forth, which is at the very heart of being able to do a good job with diagnosis. You have to communicate effectively. And they're also in an excellent position to know whether a diagnosis that you're thinking about makes sense for that patient, uh, in their minds. And this is actually not a new thing for nurses. Nurses are making diagnoses every day. And if you're in an emergency department setting, you know you see this, you know, repeatedly. They they look and look at that EKG and diagnose atrial fibrillation about as well as we can. And, they recognize strokes and so many other things. So this is not a new job for them, but what would be new would be telling them, hey, you are my partner on this diagnostic team. And if you see something that you think is important or that seems a little out of whack, or you get the sense that I didn't communicate effectively with that patient, you need to let me know. And I think if you give nurses that kind of permission, and encourage them to be involved, they would enjoy that kind of relationship. Um, just a little anecdote, I, I don't know if you're aware, but we had a scary event in the United States a couple of years ago. You remember the Ebola epidemic in Africa? I it did. was a couple of years, there were alerts all over the world, you know, there's this Ebola epidemic, watch out for people coming back from West Africa. So there was a patient who came into an emergency room in the state of Texas and he had a headache and fever and was nauseated and the nurse who interviewed him obtained the history that he had just returned from West Africa, one of these endemic regions, and had put all of that in her note. She did not talk to the physician and the physician who saw the patient did not get that history and sent him home with a diagnosis of sinusitis. Well, he was the first patient in the United States to have Ebola infection, and he came back 48 hours later after exposing 24 people to Ebola, and it's all because the nurse and the doctor were not an effective diagnostic team. Yeah, I'm aware of that
1: story. It's a quite a remarkable one. I, I guess it makes me reflect on what was the history that the physician took um, that, uh, that meant that that important detail um, wasn't told to them at the time. But as you say, um, the uh, information was available as a matter of being able to look for it. And I guess that um, that that can draw me really to... The electronic medical record, you know, how that might support the, uh, you know, this concept of a new diagnostic team. It, it's interesting f- to consider whether the widespread use of electronic med- medical records has uh, hindered or helped the formation of a team. Because on one hand, I've seen where it can work quite well. I can ask a colleague or member of my team who might, in fact, be physically somewhere else to look in on the patient record on the EMR and see a lot of really relevant information, past medical history, current problem, uh, labs, radiology, treatment received. And oftentimes um, that person uh, can potentially offer both diagnostic or treatment options from that information. And in my experience, oftentimes some possibilities, uh, which I might not have considered. And now ideally that's followed by a face-to-face assessment of the patient and conversations with other team members involved in that patient's care. Uh, But that doesn't always occur. But but I do feel that the EMR can have a positive effect on a team approach to diagnosis. But on the flip side, I've also seen it where remote clinicians uh, will make significant decisions or even order treatments remotely via the EMR, for example, from the operating theatre, without ever seeing the patient and without speaking with other members of the team, including the patient. And these instructions and orders sort of kind of they just drop into the patient record and the nursing staff act on them. I think this can be really dangerous. And I've seen this happen. Suddenly a patient is whisked off to the OR to have a appendisectomy or a laparotomy. It's been no conversation or explanation to the patient or the treating clinician, which might be me in that situation. You've used the phrase previously electronic siloing to describe a negative effect on EMRs in diagnosis. How are we getting over that um, to ensure team members are communicating effectively?
0: Stephen, thanks for bringing up the the issue of electronic medical records. It's a fascinating topic and there's so much to say about it. Um, The siloing effect happens when, when, for example, I request an imaging test and the radiologist does the exam and he puts his report in the medical record and it comes back to me. And in one sense, it's great because it's all happening fairly quickly and I can read what he or she has to say. But in olden times, you would actually go talk to the radiologist. And invariably, the radiologist knows so much more about your patient and what that exam shows than they put in their report that those conversations were really valuable and they're just not happening anymore. We, we uh, Mike LaPosada refers to this as the electronic wall. We send a test request over the wall and the radiologist or the pathologist sends a report back over the wall and there's no direct conversation. So to the extent that's happening, that's bad. But, but as you point out, there are so many virtues about the electronic medical record Uh, And they're balanced by an equally large number of of problems. And I kind of wish I could come back in 20 years when all this has settled down. The virtues are many. Um, The record is there for me. I remember going to clinic before there was an EMR, and I would be lucky if half the patients would actually have a chart that I could look at. The other half were lost in some other place. So... You know, now every medical record is there and you can read it. It's legible. And if you're lucky, it saves you time. I think that may be the the key thing that decides whether instrumental in deciding whether a clinician likes their EMR or they don't. In my case, I was a nephrologist. So it saved me a lot of time because my average patient was on 20 different medications. And instead of writing out 20 prescriptions, I could go click, 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 and I'm done. So it saved me time. But nowadays, when I talk to primary care clinicians and hospitalists, they say it takes so much time to document what happens for billing purposes that it detracts from diagnosis. It takes away time that you would otherwise have to talk to the patient. So so that's not good. So there's all these pluses and there's all these problems. And hopefully, as time goes by, we'll be able to to solve some of these and move more things to the good column and have fewer things in the bad column.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think that, um, that I take advantage of it because I'm in a hospital system. I can just go over and have a conversation with the radiologist about uh, the best test uh, or even the pathologist at times, certainly. And I think by, by actually making that uh, connection with them, they then really do become part of the team involved and end up having an interest in getting the right diagnosis in partnership with me. I think it's still possible, as I said, many of our listeners are uh, from what might be in small practices in primary care where I know the time pressures um, and, much can be actually much worse in primary care, you know, seeing six patients in an hour and then having to make all that documentation, as you say, and would they have the time then to ring a radiologist? Or is it just so much easier to put a, a remote order in for a CTPA or whatever it might be um, for the patient? I think that's a real challenge in primary care. But equally, um, it's something that is likely to improve the ability to make an accurate diagnosis in whatever setting one is in.
0: A lot of clinicians I talk to Stephen say that they just wish they had more time. That's the number one thing that they think would would improve their diagnostic outcomes. You know, but while we're on it, we should talk about the new kid on the block, which is telehealth, virtual consults and virtual visits, because this may be part of the answer Uh, There are interesting papers out now that you can have virtual tumor boards that bring more people into the discussion and the patient can even be there during the discussion of of their case. Uh, There are uh, studies that show that you can get consults easier and faster and better using telehealth. So this may may be a good thing that's come along and could help us a lot. Yeah, can you just explain
1: to for me and for our listeners what a tumor board is? It's not a term that I'm familiar with.
0: Oh yeah, sorry. So, in the states, if a patient has a new diagnosis of cancer, many organizations, it's hospital based, will have a conference where the case is presented by their primary care person or perhaps an oncologist, but the radiologist is there, the pathologist the surgeons, and uh, it's an opportunity to discuss what exactly is the diagnosis, what is the stage, what is the best next step, Uh, should it be surgery, should it be radiation, should it be chemotherapy, should it be watch and wait, and these are very um, interesting and ideal, I would say, ways to manage a patient, to have all these people with all this expertise in the room talking together.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. And and that would obviously include the patient and or family members
0: uh, in that type of telehealth meeting? Yes, ideally. Um, it, It happened almost never before the age of telehealth. But I'm hearing now that there are tumor boards where the patient can just participate the same way they'd be on a Zoom call with somebody. And it's working out quite well.
1: Yeah, I have um, read some of that, uh, that those sorts of case conferences and specifically involving patients and important loved ones or important relatives who physically mightn't be able to attend the hospital because they're remote. They couldn't attend that meeting at the hospital. And the advent of telehealth, is, as I would think, has enabled both the patient and perhaps even decision-making relatives um, or interested relatives in being becoming part of the conversation more easily than trying to make travel arrangements and things, particularly if someone is living a, a longer distance away and, or even, uh, even internationally.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and having another person there with you is often uh, advantageous. Uh, when you're the patient, you're under a lot of stress, so you have trouble remembering everything. But if you have a family member or a friend there with you, they may say, hey, you forgot to tell the doctor about that time you were in the hospital and, and had the reaction to amoxicillin or whatever it is that may be relevant. Uh, and you know, Stephen, we're all going to be patients someday. And, you know, it's, it's good to keep in mind that having somebody with you is a best practice when you're receiving medical care. Uh, we should all be keeping all of our tests together and all of our consults, because if you go see a doctor, a new doctor, they may not have all of your electronic records. So these are things we should all do as patients and things we should recommend to the patients we take care of ourselves.
1: Yeah, it's great advice for for us as, as patients and family members, but also as clinicians to make sure that we're uh, explicitly inviting family members to to attend and be be part of any diagnostic formulation or, or discussion of treatment. Listen, Mark, we're running a bit out of time, but I do want to finish up on something um, that's important. Uh, I was interested to, to read that you in the past have specifically included medical librarians in the contemporary diagnostic team. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about how they can contribute?
0: Oh, sure. This was one of the, the- the best things that ever happened to me when i was attending on the inpatient teams we we had a medical librarian in our medical center and they you know they sat in their own building and did their own own thing but we invited her to come with us on rounds and it was an epiphany because we have all these questions that arise in the everyday course of taking care of patients that we never take time to look up And the medical librarian uh, enjoyed doing this and was able to provide us with answers to all of these questions. Uh, It brings to mind a study that a colleague of ours did, John Ely. John is a family medicine doctor, and he studied his his family medicine colleagues in his own practice and watched them over the course of, of a day. And what he found was that on average, there is an unanswered medical question once every hour. So at the end of your day, you've got 10 or 15 medical questions. And what he also found was that only one in four did the physicians take the time to look up. So the vast majority of these go unanswered. And we just go from one day to the next with all these questions arising that we never quite resolve. So having somebody available to help look these things up can be invaluable. And, uh, you know, I think what will replace this very quickly is Google or Siri or chat GPT, you know, these electronic resources that can link us with knowledge.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I know that um, there's a, there's actually, a, as you would know, a number of digital support systems or software that's now available um, that, that I've seen a number of clinicians building into their practice. And I mean things like differential diagnosis generators and um, symptom checkers and those sorts of things. They, they've come to my attention largely through the efforts of my library by letting me know that they are available. Um, do, you, do you think that they're part of the team, these, um, these digital, sometimes decision support systems that are becoming available?
0: Stephen, absolutely. These things are fantastic. And we talked about discussing a case with a peer. If you don't have a peer available, these symptom checkers are amazing. Uh, The best ones are Isabel or DX or Visual DX. I don't have any financial ties, but I've used them all and they're terrific. They are so much better than Google. Friends do not let friends use Google for diagnosis. It's horrible. These specialized systems are amazing you put in the key findings and in a couple of seconds they give you here's 10 things to think about and you may not have thought of eight or nine of those so it's like having a colleague right there next to you that's especially knowledgeable and happy to help
1: yeah i think that's um i'm increasingly using them myself and you and they can be used you know in a hospital setting or in a primary care practice or secondary care
0: practice remote from a hospital so they are they are increasingly available and worthwhile. I was talking to the Isabel people and they're telling me that they have a patient-facing version where patients can look up what they might have after they put in their symptoms. And this is catching on very quickly, much more quickly than the physician-patient version. So I think all of us in the near future can look forward to having patients walking in with the Google printout of the 10 most likely things they could have so we all need to be ready for that. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm quite ready
1: for that. I've had enough Google printouts uh, come through already, but certainly not from um, a software like Isabel that uh, might be a far more refined version. Listen, Mark, thank you so much for the time you've had with us uh, today, the uh, conversation we've had about that, the importance of an expanded team, including the patient and their family, um, in our abilities to improve our diagnostic acumen and and um, you know lessen that error rate that we know, as you said, is you know around one in ten um, or across a range of different areas. I think some of the insights you've given us and some of your thoughts over many years around this topic have been really valuable. Um, I hope that's been valuable for our listeners. So, uh, with that in mind. Thank you again. It's lovely to see you.
0: Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for your interest in improving diagnosis. It's It's a timely topic and something we can all try to address.
1: And with that, we reached the end of today's podcast, Diagnosis a Team Sport. We heard from Professor Mark Graber, who shared some of his expertise in relation to the benefits of taking a team approach to diagnosis. Mark reminded us that so many diagnostic errors are related to breakdowns in individuals' clinical reasoning and the cognitive aspects of making a diagnosis, knowing that as humans, we are fallible and will make mistakes. By deliberately including others in the making of a diagnosis, We get the advantage of second perspectives or opinions. And he reminded us that fresh eyes catch mistakes. What really struck me was how often a diagnosis for a given patient changes when a second physician is introduced, be that a second read of radiology or simply another assessment by a different consultant. The diagnostic accuracy can be improved by involving more people. Mark also highlighted the importance of ensuring that patients and families are at the very centre of the diagnostic team. And by deliberately partnering with them, then you'll have better outcomes in diagnosis. And in fact, he told us that anyone who touches a patient can play a role and can and should be empowered to be part of the team, they often just need permission and encouragement to do so. I hope these insights about teams in diagnosis have been of interest to you all. For further information about today's podcast, and if you're a member of Medical Protection and would like a certificate for listening, please take a look in the podcast description. I can also let you know that members will have access to a recorded webinar featuring Professor Graver talking about the future of diagnosis. The link will be in the podcast description. By paying attention, to the way we go about making diagnoses, we can begin to reduce the times our patients experience harm from an incorrect diagnosis. I've been your host, Stephen Priestley. Thank you for listening. It's actually really worrying. I actually have no idea most of the time about the errors in diagnosis which I have made. What I do know from the literature is that I will have made plenty of errors.